This morning's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, beloved. If you're wondering how I'm going to fill an entire sermon with a two-verse passage, uh, buckle up and prepare to get your nerd on, because we're going to be getting into some uh, free Bible education here today. So um, I am going to read the passage that David just read, but I'm going to read it in all three Gospels where it comes from. So as anybody who's been involved with scripture or Bible study much, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of the same passages, and then John is his own little poetic genius off to the side talking about very different things. So the text from Matthew 13 is he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch it in its branches. Might sound familiar, because that's the one that uh, David just read. Um, Matthew 13, the entire chapter is a chapter of parables that are all about the kingdom of God. The sower and the seeds, the wheat and the weeds, the hidden treasure, the merchant's pearl, the dragnet, and then Jesus explaining what the parable of the sower and the seeds meant. In this gospel, the par- this parable is always linked to a second short parable in all three versions. In this one, it's linked to the parable of the leaven and the yeast, but Emily uh, is going to be preaching on that, so I'm not going to dig into all of that context today. The text from Matthew, f- or I'm sorry, Mark 4 says, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. So this time the parable directly before this one is about a seed that was scattered on the ground, and it grows regardless of the actions of the man who sowed it. So it's a slightly different reflection when you put those two together. And then it's followed by Jesus calming the storm. So not another teaching or parable, but one of Jesus' miracles. And then in Luke 13, Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. In this uh, gospel, before the parable, Jesus is healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath. The leaders come against him. The people think he's great. So it's more of a narrative. And then after this, it's followed again by the parable of the yeast and the leaven. And then a conversation about who will be saved and whether or not that path is something that is narrow or easy to find. So here's why the context matters. And you've probably heard me say this before if you've been here for a while. It's important for us to understand that the Gospels are ancient biography. So the Gospels are books that are written about Jesus by people who either followed him or wanted to get his message out. 
but ancient biographies were not written chronologically. If you look at, at a Roman bi uh, biology or biography about a Caesar or a great warrior or somebody like that, they're not gonna tell the story from birth to death like we do. It's a Western modern way of writing. In that day, biographies were written where the arrangement of the content was as much a part of the story as the content itself. So if you're talking about somebody who was a great warrior, you might start by talking about like how they were trained and their youth, but then you might go into things that they said about battle as they were coming of age. And then maybe you would talk in a chunk about all of the great battles that they won. You wouldn't start with their birth and then go through their youth and then go into their adulthood. That wasn't the way they told stories. I actually think this is in some ways more powerful, but also if you don't know that, you're very confused as to why all the Gospels put the stories in different orders. That's why. Each one was written by a different person, talking to different people who had followed Jesus with different memories, to a different audience, and with a different purpose. And all of that context reflects onto what the passage is supposed to mean. So, you want to talk more about all of that stuff, I'm happy to sit down with you. You don't have to pay for a degree like I did, but I'm not going to bore you with all of the details today. Just know that it's important to recognize that the arrangement matters. So what comes before and after something in the Gospels is part of the meaning of that text. Does that all make sense? Okay. Um, Gospels are not dictations. Um, I do believe that the, the Bible was inspired by God. I do not think he was downloading information into brains who were then just automatically writing things out. They're all based on people's memories and interpretations and understandings of Jesus at the time. So we have to recognize that when Jesus was talking in parables, which I'll talk a little bit about that specific linguistic tactic in a second, they weren't necessarily trying to write down word for word what he was saying and then word for word what he meant. That's not how storytelling works. So just keep in mind that the Gospels are, again, biographies. They are stories that were written about Jesus' life and ministry by people who believed that it mattered. And then when it comes into the variants in each of our three sections or three um, versions, we see the kingdom of God used versus the kingdom of heaven. We see that the seed was put in a garden or in a field Birds are resting on the branches or birds are resting in the shadows. Please don't get hung up on it. <laughs> he could have told the story 50 times. He could have used this parable 100 times in the course of his ministry. And so the, those little distinctions, they can fill out maybe how we interpret what it means looking at the whole. But the distinctions don't mean that there are contradictions. It just means that either he told the story multiple ways or people remembered it different ways. It's not a big deal. So if, if that's something that still hangs you up with the scriptures, just try to let that go a little bit because, again, we're talking about storytelling. Not that it's not true, just that it's a narrative. And then the similarities are that we always see it paired with at least one other, the kingdom is like parable. And we have to remember that hyperbole existed back then too. So nobody thought that the mustard seed was actually the smallest seed. Even back then, they knew the orchid seed was smaller. <laughs> so nobody thought to, their, to themselves, wait a minute, Jesus clearly has never seen seeds before because it is definitely not the smallest seed in the world. 
that he, he wasn't talking um, agriculture at the time. That wasn't his point. Um, it's also not the largest garden plant. It does not grow into a tree. It max grows 10 to 12 feet in that area at that time from what we know. So it was a really tall bush, but it was never like a tree. So again, we have to remember Jesus is using hyperbole here to get a point across. We live in a very sarcastic world. We should all understand how that works, but it, it's not limited to today. So just to throw that out. A little bit about parables themselves. So Matthew and Mark specifically linked to the telling of this parable tell us that Jesus regularly used parables. Um, in Mark it says that he only spoke in parables, also hyperbole, which we know, um, but he, it, was a, it was something that he used regularly. It was a main thing that Jesus used when he was talking to the crowds. Um, the way Mark puts it exactly is with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could not understand, or as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So I want to ask, and I will say I don't have a way to watch online, so if, um, thank you, Tara. If you want to answer this online, uh, Tara will let me know, but I'm going to ask the room here, why do you think Jesus used parables so much? One of the first ones, and this um, goes to what several people said, the only way that the parables would make sense is if people were thinking about things somewhere close to the way Jesus was already talking about them. So when we see, like in Matthew, where it says that Jesus used the parables um, because people were hearing or listening but not hearing and seeing but not understanding, it wasn't a test that Jesus was trying to put out. It was more a thermometer. If you understood what he was saying about the kingdom of God or what he meant by the kingdom of God, you would understand what he was saying. But if you were locked into the wrong way of understanding what the kingdom of God was, you weren't going to understand what he said. And so by using parables, he was able to bring big ideas like the kingdom of God to people in a way that they could hopefully begin to understand because his message was controversial enough at the end of the day to land him on a cross. So this was a way for him to kind of invite those who were willing to hear what he was saying into an understanding of the details. Um, the scriptures say that he used parables to reveal truth to those who could hear and also to conceal those truths from those who could not. So you can get into a whole theological discussion about that particular thing. Why would Jesus try to conceal the things he was saying? My personal understanding of that is that because he did know that what he was saying would land him on a cross, he had to speak that way until he knew it was time. Like we see a lot at the end of Jesus' life where it says, and then he knew the time had come. So until the time had come, he did have to make sure that he spoke in a way that wouldn't get him to the cross before he, his ministry was complete. Um, now that's just my personal understanding. You can understand it differently. Again, I'm happy to talk to people, you know, if you have thoughts around that idea that you want to explore. Um, but I will say that there's also a reality that our understanding was going to continue to develop. Those who followed him, like the disciples for three years, you would hope that they would grow in their understanding as time went. Um, and I think most of us have had that experience if we have like a book that we've read more than once. Um, for me, it was the Ragamuffin Gospel uh, by Brendan Manning. When I was 19, I read that book. I was scandalized. I was like, this guy's not a Christian. I don't understand how anybody thinks that this book is okay. 
And then I read it in my mid-20s, and it was life-saving because my theology had changed so much that all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's what he meant. I didn't get it. And then I reread it again in my mid-30s, and I was like, yeah, I know. Like, I got it. Like, my, my thinking has developed to the point where none of this is news to me. And it resonates. So if you've had that experience, that is some of what the parables were meant to do, were to carry people through as they grew in their understanding of, of Jesus' message. They're also memorable. Um, he used common themes for his listeners. So that's why we see so much about agriculture and the home, which it is interesting that he always tried to include analogies that would resonate with the women who were listening to him as well as the men. So talking about things like yeast or the woman cleaning the house to find the coin, he did make space for that in his teachings. Um, so an example of this for me uh, was last week's practice, if anybody did it, it was rewriting a parable, specifically the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when I first was presented with that um, assignment, and I do not bring this up to um, upset anybody, so if I do, I apologize, but it was pretty soon after 9-11. And so when I rewrote the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan to me only made sense as a devout Muslim because that had the same impact as the Good Samaritan would have had for the original audience. Today, it might be Putin. The Good Samaritan might be an eco-terrorist. Uh, the Good Samaritan might be a legislator in Texas or Florida. And I only say this not to incense anybody, but to understand that the parables Jesus used were really powerful. And our understanding of those should grow and develop as our faith grows and develops. So it's okay if the Good Samaritan needs to be relegated to that time and place for you right now. It's also okay if your understanding of that starts to evolve. Um, does that all make sense? It's another purpose of parables. Um, there was wisdom in it. The disciples did often misunderstand what Jesus was saying. It's probably for the best that they rarely put in what they thought the meaning of Jesus' parables were because they likely were wrong. Um, but I also think, and this is complete conjecture, that Jesus had the wisdom to know that he was establishing something that would carry on. And parables are something that we can go to. And while the context is important, it's the whole reason I'm up here today, we can also look at what those mean for us today. So for a parable like the Good Samaritan, to think about it in modern terms breaks it open for us even more than it did when we just understood its context. And then, as was very well put, uh, it gets us past our preconceived ideas and the walls and barriers that we have to understanding things. For me, I, I see this most clearly outside of scripture with like sci-fi and fantasy. I love those genres, and part of the reason I love those genres is because even though it was before my time, shows like Babylon 5 really like exploded ideas of gender and race and sexuality in a time when you couldn't talk about those things, like socially or beyond. Like they were very taboo subjects and these shows were able to address some of that. Battlestar Galactica with um, the war in Iraq, the way they told the story of things like occupation made you think about what was happening in the real world in a different way. And I think parables are meant to do the same thing. Think about it in just a different enough way that it gets past what we think and we see that happening in people's reactions all the time. It's why people got so mad when Jesus would tell certain parables. 
because they got it. Like, it worked, and then they were mad that it worked, <laughs> and so they had to double down on those preconceived ideas. But the parables challenge us to question those things and see if there are ways that we need to adjust our thinking. And then one warning with parables, don't make more of them than is intended. Um, the best example of this I ever saw, and you can look this up online if you want to see the whole ridiculous thing, but St. Augustine took the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I, I know I'm not preaching on the Good Samaritan today, it's just a, a good example for all of this, but he took that parable, and instead of digging into what Jesus meant by it, I'm going to give you some examples of the parallels he drew, because he assigned different meanings to almost every single noun in that entire parable. So some examples, the man who was robbed was Adam, of Adam and Eve, Jericho is the moon, the thieves are the devil and his demons, the beating of the man was a temptation to sin, God is the good Samaritan, being put on the donkey's back is equal to the belief in incarnation, the inn that they go to is the church, and on and on and on so fully stripping it, not only of meaning, but also of any common sense at all, that the, the parable becomes meaningless. Usually a parable has one meaning, regardless of how many people are involved or how many nouns are involved or how much happens, usually there's a core meaning behind a parable. So keep that in mind. This parable itself, and um, Amy, uh, who wrote the book that we are um, using for this series, um, she laid them out very well. This parable of the mustard seed has been labored to mean many things. That it points to eternal life through Jesus. That um, the, the point of the story is that Israel is going to be restored and other nations who are the birds are resting within the blessing of Israel. The mustard plant is the gospel and the birds are the heathen unbelievers. Or it gets political. The garden is the evil world and the mustard must overtake it. Maybe some of those things are true, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's quite where Jesus was going with any of it. So let's get into what it actually might mean. For the disciples and those who were hearing it at the time, what they thought the kingdom of God would be, when they heard stories about God um, restoring the kingdom or the kingdom of God being like something, we have to understand that what the disciples were picturing was Israel becoming a political power in the world again, overthrowing Rome, removing all of the captors from, from their country, a new David being installed as king, and then becoming a superpower in the world, which we see those promises all through the Old Testament. So why wouldn't they think that that's what the kingdom of God meant, right? And then they hear Jesus comparing this kingdom to something small, something common. Everybody had access to mustard seeds and mustard. It was modest at its grandest. Again, 10 to 12 feet is not that high. I mean, I'm only five something, and, and so it might be high for me. But, oh, it's a plant. It's not that high. They were, he was talking about something that was strong enough to always get a reaction, and that was specifically known for its medicinal purposes. That was the main use of mustard outside of being a condiment. It's anti-inflammatory, it has a lot of other uses medicinally, and that was something that they knew at that time. And so for them, mustard, if you thought of mustard, that was the main thing that you would go to, most likely from what we know. 
is that that was its common um, significance in their society. So that would be confusing, right? Like if you put yourself in that context for a second, you're following this guy who keeps talking about this kingdom of God, you very much see it in a here and now political context, but he's using this, this example or this comparison that is so small and modest and easily accessible, you wouldn't know how to process that unless you started to think about the kingdom differently. And so that's the challenge that he's putting forth to them. This is something you need to rethink if you're going to understand anything else that we're doing or that I'm saying. So um, just a little bit, because we have almost no real information um, historically about this. Pliny the Elder, who was a contemporary of Jesus, had written an encyclopedic book called Natural History. And that's where um, we get the definition or description of the plants of the Mediterranean world at that time. He says two main things about the mustard plant. It's medicinal, and it's a weed that cannot be stopped. Mustard, with its pungent taste and fiery effect, is extremely beneficial for the health. It grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. So, for a lot of people who maybe had a garden and that's where they got the majority of their food, weed was a little bit pesky because some is good, but it'll overtake everything. That's the visual that they would have had. Think like ivy today is the only, I, I'm not a plant person, so the ivy was the only thing that could come to mind. But it's hard to get rid of, right? Like it's always growing and it, it gets into the nooks and crannies of buildings and stuff like that. Like, it's a little bit invasive. It's pretty, but, but that's about the only purpose it serves. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So, for the disciples and for the listeners at that time, it's a two-sentence parable, right? Like, we don't want to belabor. Jesus was saying, the kingdom isn't what you think it is. It's going to be something that uh, creeps around and, and gets into the nooks and crannies of things, but it's not going to be this big, explosive, powerful thing. He didn't use the cedars of Lebanon to describe the kingdom of God as he saw it. It's small, it's accessible, it's healing, it can provide some rest, but at the end of the day, it's not going to look the way you think it is. So if we accept these two primary meanings, smallness that becomes large and medicinal qualities, and we define the kingdom of God not as a political power, but as any place where the kingdom virtues are being lived and upheld. Um, and you can think of the fruit of the spirit if you're trying to picture what that looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's hard for me to picture most of those happening in our public spheres today. Those, those qualities are actually a little countercultural. I would say, right now, um, as divisive and politicized and angry as everybody is, as isolated as we all are. I, I genuinely believe that the kingdom of God is upheld in as much as we are seeking to live these things out. And they are just as controversial today as they were in Jesus' day. So if we accept those two meanings of the parable and that definition of the kingdom of God, then what we're talking about is a description of this kingdom inhabiting the kingdoms of the world in a small, invasive, noticeable, but humble way that brings healing and rest to those living in those contrary kingdoms. 
as the church, we are meant, big church and Amago, we are meant to be ambassadors of that kingdom in this world. We are meant to be ambassadors of that kingdom if we live in Uganda, if we live in Russia, if we live in Japan, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, right? And so we are seeking to live out the values of that kingdom regardless of the literal or material kingdom in which we reside. It's gonna be countercultural anywhere we go. And it doesn't happen by coming at people with fists or screaming or condemning and judging what's happening around us. We see it happening as we just continue to grow those values and virtues into the world in as many nooks and crannies as we possibly can. That is what the kingdom of God looks like. That is what the kingdom of God provides. And then we are here as the church, as individuals, to provide rest for those who are weary. How many of you are here because you're just weary of the world? You come here on Sundays because you need some place where you can rest a little bit. I hope that that's one of the reasons you come here. Or because you need to be in a place where those values are upheld and you're not constantly battling against the hatred and vitriol and constant fighting and negativity that's happening in the world around us. You wanna be in a place where you can rest in the goodness of who God is and be with people who believe that God is those things, right? That's what we're meant to carry out into the world. That is what we're meant to provide. And hopefully we are here to bring healing to our communities, not just rest, but genuine healing, actually naming the conditions of sin not in a judgmental way, but in a way that says, I, I see the root of what corrodes you. There is a better way. Not by, you know, setting up evangelism tables on college campuses. Nothing against that necessarily, but it's not about that. It's about the small, the intrusive ways that make people say, you just respond to things differently. Not because you're trying to be pious, but because the Spirit of God is genuinely transforming you into the image of Jesus as you walk your path. Um, a quote by Shane Claiborne, who you'll hear me quote every single time I talk, um, in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, he talks about this idea of the mustard seed and the kingdom of God. And he does politicize it, which Shane Claiborne is very good at doing. But this very small little quote, I feel like, fully summarizes how he changed my thinking about the kingdom of God. He says, the Jesus revolution is not a frontal attack on the empires of this world. It is a subtle contagion spreading one little life, one little hospitality house at a time. It's spread as each one of us within each of our communities and within our own lives continue to fully embrace what it means to be part of that kingdom of God. I was taught when I was young that the kingdom of God was power and might and overcoming others, even if against their will, for the sake of some other reality that we would experience when we die. And I believed that way for 15, 20 years. But maybe it's about living out the tension of these two worlds, devotion to those among whom we live, in our houses, our towns, and our world, commitment to small deeds that might bring healing or rest, and because we believe that it's the goodness of God that draws people to repent. Not piety, 
not lectures, not condemnation. Scripture tells us it's the goodness of God that draws people to repent. Richard Rohr, another common um, source I know, says the virtue for living in the in-between times, Jesus calls faith. He is talking about the grace and the freedom to live God's dream for the world now, while not rejecting the world as it is. That's a mighty tension that is not easily resolved. There are always going to be two worlds. The world as it is usually operates on power, ego, and success. The world as it could be operates out of love. One is founded on dominating power. The other is a continual call to right relationship and reciprocal power. The secret of this kingdom life is discovering how we can live in both worlds simultaneously. So to draw this to an end, just a couple of points. Do the small thing that feels insignificant. Keep planting the seeds. I went, I will cry, um, I went to a poetry reading at a local bookstore called uh, Lit on Fire a week or so ago. It was the first time this group had gotten together um, since the pandemic started. And I had never been to the bookstore or to the poetry reading. I went with a friend. I had no idea what a community had been forged there um, before I showed up. And there were a lot of new people as well, but as people shared their stories through poetry, um, it was devastating. I was sobbing through the whole thing. I sobbed for a while after. The heartbreak that these people felt safe sharing. I don't know that I've ever been in a church ever, and I love Imago, but I don't know that I've ever been someplace where people so willingly and freely opened their veins and blood in front of one another, knowing what a safe space it was going to be, knowing that they were going to be held. And they talked about everything that follows the phrase trigger warning that you can imagine. And it was beautiful how they held each other and the encouragement and hearing people from the back shouting, F yeah, you know, when, when people are sharing like what's happening, there was, it felt like amen, like it felt like hallelujah in that space. What she has done in creating that space is probably a lot of work. It's probably exhausting. She's probably very stressed out, probably not making a lot of money, I'm guessing, but she has found a way to create a space for people who I don't know have another space. There was a lot of church trauma in that room. Um, she's planting small seeds, but man, are they, are they growing into something for those people? If you're weary, take the time to rest, but keep doing it anyway. Every word of kindness, every small effort of generosity, every gentle gesture matters. Sitting with a grief-stricken friend when you don't know what to say and you feel helpless still matters. Every protest walk, every time you fight the addictive or mean-spirited urge that rises up within you matters. Every wordless prayer, every time you gather what little strength you have to show up matters. The seeds matter. It's not your job to grow them. It's just your job to plant them. Trust the process. 
Once the seeds are planted, let them grow. Give them what they need, but don't overhandle them. Or as Amy says in her book, they'll never, they'll never germinate. You might be amazed by what the Holy Spirit does when you aren't looking and when you're trusting God to do what only God can do. Sometimes we can help a thing to death. So just be aware. Now, that is another double-edged sword to what I'm going to say next, which is keep growing the kingdom in your own life. Keep watering the seeds that have been planted in you. Keep putting them out in the sun. Keep giving them what they need to flourish. Keep seeking to grow the kingdom in your context, your life, your workspaces, your home, your body, your understanding of yourself, your relationship to yourself. Keep nourishing the seeds that have been planted, even if you don't see the results that you're looking for, because again, the results are not your business. The working and the faithfulness are your business. And then just continue to find ways to seek to heal, to provide healing, to invite others to rest as you rest, and just don't ever minimize the power of your actions because remember, you're not alone in, in growing that field. You are one part of a larger group of people who are partnering with God to advance the kingdom in whatever ways you are able.